This is The Good Life. I'm Dean Wilson. We have an incredible program today. I truly encourage you to watch this hour. It is world historian Dr. Marshall Foster. You will learn a lot. You'll be inspired and you'll have some things to teach your children. They'll think you're smart. It's a win-win. It's a win-win all the way around. I wear a hat in this episode. We have a toast. It's the surprises really just keep coming at you. So stay tuned. The Good Life is next. This is Good Life. I'm Dean Wilson. I have a really special guest today. Dr. Marshall Foster is with me. Uh, Dr. Foster is the founder and president of the World History Institute. He's a wonderful man. He is a friend of my father dating back to high school. He may know more about world history than anyone you'll ever meet. That's my prediction. And it's, it's a rare occasion when I do something like this, but I'm, I've come with something in light of the fact that I have Marshall. And that is a hat. Because every time I see you, you have that. I do. So I'm going to wear this. Fabulous. Won't, won't that be good? I love that. Scott and an Irish kind oh, of Every time order. I give a, a tour or a cruise, everybody on my trip gets one of those. Everybody wears stuff. the hat. got to wear the hat. I felt like I needed to wear the hat. you got to wear the hat. I How like this. Good? Yeah. Okay. All so right. now we can proceed. Marshall, welcome. Thank you. You founded the World History Institute, which is a nonprofit to teach biblical and historical foundations of liberty. That's what I read. Um, I want to read, if you don't mind, a little bit that's from your website on the World History Institute. For more than three decades, the World History Institute has been researching and teaching the cause and effect paper trail of personal liberty and human rights, of private enterprise and constitutional government, and of charity and the explosion of faith around the world. The Institute embraces the providential view of history, which observes history as a purposeful saga under the direction of a loving creator. This historical perspective has been the dominant view of Western civilization from the time of Augustine in the fourth century AD to the 20th century. And then you say at the bottom, each individual has a vital role to play in shaping the future of the world. It's not the power seekers, the tyrants, and the celebrities that lead the way in building successful and good civilizations. It's always been the outnumbered, principled people of faith who've led the way to freedom by following the universal biblical principles of nation building. Can you comment on the founding? And this has been a long journey for you in this work. Comment on where it all got started and yeah. talk about that. Well, I, uh, I went to the University of California, Santa Barbara. Yeah. Uh, graduated there in 67 in, uh, in, uh, in economics and history. History was, was my love. And, uh, but I left there and I went on the staff with a student Christian organization, Campus Crusade. And I was on that staff for six years and I traveled the country. Actually, I was nine years in the student ministry, also working in a seminary and going to seminary. Um, for almost a decade, I was working during the riots and revolutions of the late 60s, mm. early 70s. So I directed a work at Berkeley during the riots in 70 and uh, debated Jane Fonda at Tommy Trojan uh, really? at USC. I was the director and the founder of the Campus Crusade at USC. Um, and so I was able to actually debate her on the 
free speech platform. She wouldn't remember me, but I was yelling at her as she was coming off the uh, <laughs> off the tank out of Ho Chi Minh City, and wow. I wasn't real happy about that. But uh, anyway, so we were, but we had a good good tete-a-tete. Those days, you had free speech platforms on the campus, right. and you could talk back and forth. But the more I got involved through the '70s uh, in our in our ministry, the more I saw that that America had had a biblical foundation, but that foundation was falling away, and that although there were many people becoming Christians in what was called the Jesus movement of the time. Uh, it seemed that the culture was going to hell in a handbasket. And Mm -hmm. why is it that history would show that wherever true biblical Christianity went, charity went, love went, free enterprise went, uh, and along with it, liberty came. Mm -hmm. And and it seems like our liberty was going down at the same time Christianity was starting to rise again. And I realized that we had not been teaching our children in the schools. I, I never really learned it a providential or a biblical view of history. And so the, the entire view of world history as we know it has been tainted by a secularist, modernist view so that anything that has to do with God or purpose or heritage, especially if it drives it back to Christianity and to the fact that the roots of freedom come from there, they actually come from Moses. Moses actually was the one that created a constitutional republic. It was Moses who came up with the idea of voting and electing judges and representatives. Mm. It was Moses that believed in equal rights for all people, including the foreigner that comes in. It was Moses that constructed a self-governing republic with a Senate and a House. And the whole structure that we we took 3,400 years later and adopted into the United States Constitution. So what I've done, I've attempted to do, this takes me back to 1976 when we started, my wife and I left, and we, Trish, and we spent the last now 43 years teaching America's Christian history all over the country and around the world. And we do books and we do videos. Uh, Working with Kirk Cameron, and we do some films, and uh, and we're doing tours. We love to do tours of Europe, England, Scotland, especially. Uh, but uh, that's what we do. The reason is it's it's so needed. The people don't know the true providential history. What brings liberty, what keeps liberty, and what keeps the kind of of loving society that really we all want, no matter what our faith. Right. Uh, And the thing that history showed me was that once we know the true history, just let the facts speak for themselves. Um, You're not going to want to choose a radical socialism, or you're going to want to choose something that is biblically based that will give love and care and concern. Yeah, and uh, and that's that's what I found everywhere I go. Once the truth gets out, and they hear these stories, the right. people say, "Wow, I could have had a V eight." Use an old <laughs> right, right. advertising right, term from right, the seventies. Right, right, right. right. Uh, so anyway, that's that's kind of our story, and we've been doing it a long time, as you can tell. Yeah, right. You've been married to Trish for how long? Fifty-one years. Fifty-one years. I got uh, six more weeks. It'll be fifty-one years. Seven grandchildren. Seven grandchildren, uh, all up in Gilroy, California. That's why I just moved. From Southern California to Northern California a couple that's years where the ago, grandkids are. the seven grandkids are there, so right. they need grandpa every week. So, <laughs> I read or listened or something to to, and I wrote this down. You were talking about the strategy of Moses, of Patrick of Ireland, of Alfred the Great, of the reformers, of the Pilgrims, and of the founding fathers that leads to liberty, freedom, and justice. Talk about. What did they know? What was their strategy that we need to know about? Absolutely. The thing, as I've tracked history, as, as, I, as I mentioned, providential view of history, which is that God lovingly controls history and he, he blesses those who will, who will follow his principles. So what happens 
is that these principles are laid out in the Word, and when you read the Word and then you study it and you apply it to society, you end up developing freedom in a constitutional form. This is the ultimate expression of it, perhaps. Uh, Kirk Cameron and I did a movie in 2012 called Monumental, and it revolved around this monument. Yeah. This is actually 80 feet high and weighs 80 tons. It is the largest granite monument in America, and it sits over Plymouth Rock and overlooks the Mayflower. And uh, it used to be one of the most famous images in the world. Now it's kind of lost in attractive homes. So huh. we're resurrecting it actually this year, having a huge conference around it. But the reason I mentioned this is you mentioned the, the matrix of liberty. What is the specific strategy that Jesus used, that Paul used, that Moses used, and that, that Patrick used? And you can track it through Alpha the Great. You name the great heroes. Just name a hero of Western civilization, and if he's been successful at bringing liberty, I guarantee he's followed this, this, this plan. Talk about it. Well, the plan is simply here. You probably can't see it too well on the camera, but right here, her name is Faith, and she herself weighs about 25 tons. Is that right? A piece of solid granite. She's got her finger pointed to heaven because heaven is our hope. And so in the, in the one true God, down here, there's a Bible. It's a Geneva Bible. For the first time 400 years ago, there was a Bible unleashed in the hands of the people. Before that, they had no Bible. Well, here's the Geneva Bible, and it's open as though she reads it every day. And then it says she has this crown of wisdom here. The wisdom comes from reading the Word and pointing to the true God. The result is then she's able, this is called, her name is called Faith. So the beginning, and she's facing England, and she's saying, listen, this is what we believe in is going to bring us freedom and liberty. We need to have faith in the one true God. We need to read his Bible, and we need to trust him. Then we need to do these four things. And he's got four different statues. Each weighs 14 tons, each of them seated on the side. The first one is a, is a lady with her eyes turned in, holding the Ten Commandments in one hand right. and the scroll of Revelation in the other. Right. And she's indicating that internally we must digest self-government under God rather than go tell other people what to do. Let's deal with our own right. lives first. Right. And this shows that if we will obey the commandments and do it by the power of God, we can't do it without the gospel. So on one side, you've got an evangelist over here right. who's evangelizing. On the other side, you've got a prophet. And you know, so we need to have people... And it says morality on the front. Morality. Her name is morality. That's her name. And that's her name. And then over here is law. Law. And so for morality, personal faith, this is self-government can lead to a society where then you can have just laws. Justice. That's why we need to have justice, but that only can be if the people agree on the principles of justice. Right. That's why our society was unified for hundreds of years, because we agreed on the basic principles of justice, which were founded upon Moses, the Ten Commandments. Alfred put them in the front of common law. It's the accepted base of Western civilization. It's just been rejected by many today in the last 30 years. Yeah. But it's the base. This allows for there to be justice and mercy. You see, he's, he's holding the commandments, but he also has his hand extended in mercy. Mm -hmm. And over here, he's, he's got, you've got uh, you know, the scales of justice, and it's the whole concept there that, again, there's going to be justice but mercy uh, in the establishment of the law. And then you can't have a good law, which means a good government. You can't have a good government unless you educate your children. Mm -hmm. So the third principle is education. And you've got a 28-year-old lady with her eyes turning in again because she's introspecting, training her children. She has, she's reading or from a book, actually a, a scroll of wisdom, and then she is teaching her children who then are writing it down. So these are people, the kids are learning, number one, from their mother, and she's got the, that, uh, that crown of victory, like she's done her great job. 
because she's trained her son now to be a scribe and to write and to reason and think for himself. So wow. he's taught, she, you have to teach Christian self-government to your children if you want a lot of work, if you want morality to take place, and if you're to have true faith. Now, if you have these three, then you get the victory. The victory is this one. Liberty. His name is Liberty. And you get Liberty, and he is a, he's like in a Roman toga. Right. But actually, this is the Ephesians um, uh, armor of the, of the spiritual uh, man. And he's got the helmet of salvation, he's got the breastplate. But he also has a lion, a dead lion hanging over his back. Right. And he's slain the lion, and the lion is tyranny. And tyranny is down on the side and actually has a, has a sword to his throat. And, and on his belly is the foot of this man who is a man defending liberty. Now, the chains are on his legs and chains are in his hand for his own chains. He was, he was in slavery and bondage. And then he was freed and now he sits in freedom. And he actually has a sword, but it's sheathed. He's not going to war with anybody. He's just saying, I'm free. I'm free first here. And I'm free from my own chains. And I want to help everybody else get free. And over here wow. is my favorite part, peace. which you can't see peace. And over here, you've got the woman who actually has a cornucopia and a dove of peace. So this is what you want. Everybody wants prosperity. Everybody wants peace. Yeah. But if you want these things, there is a strategy called the matrix of freedom that has been used for 4,000 years. Why leave the strategy behind? Right. This is what can bring us freedom again. It's very simple. It can't be forced. It has to be done you know, individually as we choose to do it. But if we will choose to follow that strategy, and I can give you example after example. Patrick, we're right. gonna to get to some of those. Yes. That's incredible. So that's in Plymouth, Massachusetts today. Today, and this is the, by the way, this is the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims coming to America. Huge celebrations. I'm gonna be giving a five day tour down the coast uh, starting on July 1st, starting in Plymouth. And before that, there's a three day conference. And we're gonna be at the monument, Kirk Cameron, myself, We'll be speaking and giving two days of conferences around that monument. That's amazing. On June 26th. I never knew it existed till last night when I was watching you on TV. So it's fantastic. It is amazing. That's great. Following God's ways, not submission. The answer is transformed hearts, is what one of the things I heard you say when I was looking at you last night. So that there are men who want to do the right thing and you talked about new hearts are the answer and you referenced England in the ninth century and maybe you could talk about that and Alfred the Great who defeated the Vikings and and most poignantly the story of Guthrum could you tell that sure sure I think I, I scripted a film on this and preferably all this is going to be coming coming to to four it'll be in, in the silver screen but but uh, this is this, one of the great forgotten stories of history. Uh, he's called Alfred the Great because he's the only king of England that ever was great. Certainly the one that, only one that's ever been called great. Uh, amazing. In fact, there was no England before him. It was just a series of five kingdoms. that were all divided up and killing one another. They had turned their back on their initial Christian faith conversion two, two centuries before. They were Anglo-Saxon tribes that had come in, human sacrifice, the whole thing, and then they were converted. Well, over a period of two centuries, they were very zealous the first 150 years, and then they became very successful, and there was the, the, the Vikings had attacked Europe, but they hadn't attacked England because it was an island, and so it was left alone for 200 years. So they were feeling pretty good about themselves, very prosperous, but they were fighting among each other. In the midst of all this, 
the Vikings attack. In 7, 787, they come into Lindisfarne and they attack the holy island of Lindisfarne. Then they come down, take one kingdom after another. So by the time you get to the 1870s, when Alfred now is a young man, he was fifth in line for the throne, but now all of his brothers and his father have been killed. The only one left and the only kingdom left was Wessex. The bottom of England, a small little sliver of land, was the only thing that kept the Vikings from turning the entire island into a worshiper of Odin, killing everybody they didn't agree with. So the only thing that was standing between them was this one king, Alfred. He was 28 years old. He'd been a king for seven years. Been fighting the Vikings every three, four weeks, hand-to-hand -hand combat. He loses a battle because he's on Christmas night, Guthrum attacks while he's giving his, his men awards and there's supposed to be a treaty. Anyway, he ends up losing his castle and going out to a swamp. He's got 20 men in a swamp and then the rest of England has been lost. And Guthrum with a huge Viking army is about ready to rape and pillage the whole land. So that goes on for four months, long story short, but at, at the end of this, the people come around Alfred. He secretly out of the swamp gives direction. They meet him outside of the swamp and 5,000 uh, uh, Saxons march on this hill and they defeat Guthrum at the Battle of Eddington. Uh, probably the most critical battle for Western civilization ever took place because these, these uh, farmers and priests with their pitchforks were up against this huge Viking army from all the nations of- and What year Viking. are we here? This is in 878 AD. 878, okay, keep April, going. and he comes up the hill. Anyway, series of miracles, he, they win the battle, they chase Guthrum back to the castle he'd stolen, and Guthrum is now holed up there for two weeks, trying to figure out what to do. He's gonna either be starved to death or killed. What all the kings did, including Charlemagne, who killed 4,000 Viking leaders when he captured them, is that when you captured enemies that had been raping and pillaging, you cut their heads you off, first them. thing you did. Right. And so sure enough, uh, Guthrum gives in, but before he gives in, Alfred gives him an ultimatum. And he says, listen, I want you to come. I want you to come to my little church in the, in the woods, out there in the swamp, and I want to baptize you and your 30 leaders, and I want to lead you to Christianity, and I want you to rule England with me. I will let you rule England with me. You can have East Anglia on the east. I'll take, I'll take uh, Wessex in the south, and we'll rule together. And Guthrum was broken absolutely broken he couldn't believe it and he put on the baptismal gowns he was baptized he spent 12 days of training alfred feasted him called him his son guthrum changed his name to athestan son of alfred and he put coins all over with the with the son of athelstan son of alfred on it and he ruled faithfully holding off other viking attacks from East Anglia until the day he died. That changed the course of Western civilization. For instead of killing your enemies, you loved your enemy and converted your enemy. And, and that love shown to him changed, changed the relationship the between the Scandinavians and the English Christians. And of course, they ended up all becoming Christians. And England became the missionary capital of the world that then led to America, which then has led to one third of the world's population now. So Alfred goes from in a swamp with 20 people and the the whole future of England's at stake. It's gone, yeah. 4,000, 5,000 citizens rally around, rally around him. him. They win. They're supposed to cut Guthrum's head off. Instead, he pardons him. Pardon. The guy comes to faith. That's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable story. And and that is that that's the underdog story that we love to tell because it is God's way. It is, you know, 
Jesus said it well, didn't he, in Matthew 20? He said, he said it's not, you're not going to be like the, the, the pagan or the heathen. You, what, the first lord should be over them. You're not going to lord it right, over them. Right, no, right. you're going to serve. And so this service concept has changed governments. It changed relationships. It changes people's hearts. When you love and serve people yeah. and you do it in the name of God, they realize what's going on. And they go, I want that too. Right. It's beautiful. Um, take us back to 18th century England and what happened when Will, uh, William Wilberforce yeah. got 11 friends together to pray and eventually my understanding is they overthrew the slave trade among yeah. other things. Tell yeah. us about William Wilberforce just as briefly as you can but sure. tell us about that. William Wilberforce, uh, a very wealthy man uh, he was a very sick man. He was very small. He ended up with, I don't know what kind of disease, but it really messed him up. Uh, heavy drinker, heavy party guy, went off to college, had all the money in the world, became a, a member of parliament. And about that time, uh, he gets to know a man who used to be a former slave, uh, owner of a slave ship, uh, whose name is John Newton. And John Newton wrote the famous song, Amazing Grace. Right. Right? Well, John Newton, uh, his example of his conversion it really had an impact on him. He ends up becoming a Christian. So he dedicates his life to staying in Parliament and overthrowing the slave trade, which has, by the way, been around for 4,000 years. People have been putting slaves, everybody, you know, the various blacks of Africa, the people of, of, of the Rome, 70% of Rome at one time were made up of slaves. So slavery was constant, but, but it was wrong. And Wilberforce realized it was wrong biblically, and so under the encouragement of John Newton, his mentor, he went ahead and spent 35 years. He had one person behind him in Parliament. Everybody else hated him. There was no way that was ever going to happen. The major money in all of England at the time was made off slave trade. They were the prime promoters of slavery. They're the ones that promoted it in America. That's how we got it. And so, anyway, long story short, after 35 years of constant service and labor, those 11 men, it's called the, the Chapham Group, outside of London in this, in this wealthy man's house, they met, prayed, and they developed over 250 nonprofit organizations. They went out, they also they fed the poor, they took care of the, the gin epidemic, and everybody was, and all the 14-year-old girls, and anybody that was, a, that was on the streets were made whores. And, and it was the t most terrible thing with child labor and what was going on in London. Well, the people that dealt with that were these people that went out and started all these charities. These 11 men, some of them very wealthy, some of them very influential. One minister, one of them was the prime minister, one was it. And they met, prayed, prayed, and they supported Wilberforce. And so after 35 years, when he was almost dead, in fact, he died a few days later, they eliminated, first they stopped the slave trade about 10 years before, and then they eliminated it in the entire world, and the, the English world, um, just a day or two before he died. Wow. Just perseverance. I mean, just an amazing, amazing thing that happened. And uh, again, the power of prayer. They prayer. prayed and believed God and did the right thing. And then they started doing stuff. They did they did so. They couldn't stand seeing what was going on in society. So they went out and changed things. They right. got rid of that child, uh, uh, those child, those labor laws that were allowing these, these mongers to go in there and work kids 18 hours a day, you know, seven days a week. And it's amazing, a small group. I mean, throughout okay. your stories that you tell, it just seems like there's 12 guys in a upper room there's 11 guys over here and eight guys over there and it's it doesn't take big numbers 
St. Patrick, he comes into Ireland. They're Druid-worshipping headhunters. In fact, they're sex traffickers. They make their money going over and collecting young teenage kids and taking them back to Ireland, right? So guess what? Patrick is picked up as one of those kids, 16 years old, along with 2,000 in one day. He's taken back and made into a sex trafficking slave up in Northern Ireland. Six years later, God get, talks to him and says, you're going to be free. I want you to walk to the beach. There's going to be a boat. He gets away. He comes back, and then God says, you're going to go back and reach Ireland. He spends 20 years preparing himself, goes back at the age of 45 with 11 friends, 12 of them on three little boats that he paid for himself to the same place where they were going to enslave him. And they were no different. He went around and started over 300 churches. It took him 35 years. He peacefully converted the island to Christianity. But more than that, he ended the uh, sex trafficking. He ended slavery. He set up a free enterprise system. And they started translating the classics that were all lost because of the fall of the Roman Empire. And the Irish missionaries and the Irish scholars became the leaders of converting all of Europe from its paganism. And the Irish, they just got on those little boats with a copy of the Bible. It took them 30 years to print, I mean, to copy. And they would just get off and go off to Germany. They went off to France. They went off to England. They converted Scotland. I mean, and how did they do it? With one guy with a few friends right. and does the right thing over the long haul. Right. Prayerful. 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 Prayer is the work, isn't it? I mean, in many respects. This is what we need this year. This is, look at the, look what we're facing right now. Right. I mean, the crises of our day. And along with the crises, then we've got elections, and then we've got and, and problems all over the world. But this is when God works. There have been five great awakenings in American history. Right. Every one of them has been preceded by trauma and prayer. Usually the trauma brings us to our senses, right. and then we start praying. I'm going to be leading a prayer meeting for Ventura County just uh, on Sunday, after, Sunday evening, right over down here on, by the water. And it's happening now all over. Tennessee is beginning a revival that's been going on for two months now. Hundreds and thousands of churches all over eastern Tennessee. But there's now there's I'm going to a prayer meeting. There's there's going to be uh, my movie Monumental is going to be handed out to everybody. Yes, let in me the, see that. So this you did this. This is a a movie that Marshall co-produced with Kirk with Cameron. Kirk Cameron called Monumental. If you haven't seen this, I recommend it. You mentioned, you touched on persecution, suffering, and you you mentioned that in times of great difficulty, in times of great persecution, and I would add the word suffering, yeah. it can bring out the best. It can be the best, worst of times, and the best of times in a sense, exactly. because I think one of the ways you put it last night was we get serious about God. That's right. Talk about that, not only as a nation. I mean, the, the nations start with people. Sure. But I've experienced that in my life. The suffering, whether, you know, we had a brain-injured child, I've made some stupid decisions. Sure. Suffering tends to bring about a, a sense of brokenness and a sense of dependence on God, which then yields really good fruit. <laughs> Talk about that. Well, you know, we're all broken. Yeah. We're all, we start broken. And so it's a matter, some of us just don't want to admit it. In fact, right. the vast majority of us don't want to admit it. And so it's, it just depends on how hard-headed we are. But, right. but God, in his, God in His grace and love, He uses these circumstances in our lives, many times brought on by ourselves, uh, to, to drive us to Himself. And there we find the solace, there we find the love. And, and, uh, and this, I've seen, it, uh, I've seen it in my own lifetime. 50 years ago was the last great awakening that started in a Asbury Seminary back in 1970 and it swept through the Jesus movement, came to all the campuses of, of, of America over the next several years. 
And it's interesting that 50 years later in Tennessee, that's going on right now at the exact same place. It, but it, it started it, with it prayer. Been, They've been praying every for years there, praying for years. And But hasn't it happened yeah. in America's history like every, every 50 years? Every 50 years or so, there's been a great awakening. The first one in 1738, the next one in 1795. We were falling apart in 1795 after the American Revolution. We were, we were gone. And all the colleges had turned to atheism. And it, within 10 years, the colleges have been transformed. The, the country was transformed and the modern missionary movement came and that's how China and all these other places have been reached. So it happens every 50 years. During the Civil War, it happened. And, and the last one was what, what some people refer to as the, the Jesus, Jesus movement. movement. That's right. That's, that's interesting. Um, I want to talk about just a few peop, interesting people. We, you talked about Alfred the Great. You talked about Patrick of Ireland. Tell us about Samuel Rutherford and how a person of faith like him, not a big church, 100 people, ministered to 100 people for 30 years, but he's impacted the course of history, as I understand it. Can you tell us about Samuel Rutherford? Yeah, I mean, he starts out with a bad decision. Early in his life, he had some kind of bad decision he made. Usually involves a lady, and uh, <laughs> but he, you know, he repented. He went on, and and uh, he went and and trained. He was a brilliant scholar, and in fact, he became the most brilliant scholar in all of Scotland at the time. And and yet, he had this one little church up in the country, on the far in the north of Scotland, and he just stayed with that church. He loved the people. The people couldn't even often get to church. He would go out to their houses one by one. His big thing was, I'm going to care for those who God has given me to the day I die. And he did that very thing. But while he was doing it, God lifted him up and raised him up and had him write a couple of unbelievable documents. One called the Westminster Confession of Faith, which happens to be probably the, as far as the, uh, the, the Presbyterians or the Reformed thinking people, that's probably the foremost document in right. the land. Well, he was one of the writers of that. He went down to England to do that in 1644. And he also wrote a book called Lex Rex, which is, is probably the most famous defense of standing for truth and, and standing for God over a tyrant. So can you defend yourself against a tyrant? Yes, you can. There is a place where authority has to be resisted even physically. And that's something that was not accepted in the Dark Ages because the kings had believed in the divine right of kings. The right. king tells you what to do. You can never fight a king. If you fight a king, you're fighting against God. Well, that's just a big lie, right? right. That's, that's what people have been saying. To, that's what Fidel Castro and, right. and uh, the communists said, well, you, you know, we represent the people. No, you're just, you live in the Dhaka and we live in the shacks. Right. Um, so in reality, there comes a place where, where you have to take a stand for truth. And he gave all the principles, and it was basically 400, and 400 pages of, of scripture verses defending the right of citizens to stand for God and to keep their liberty. And the truth is that became the standard for the American Revolution. So much of what happened in Scotland in the 17th century was then brought to reality in America in the 18th century because the Scots were persecuted by the English in the 18th century and the Scots all migrated, 640,000 of them. One third of the adult population of America at the time of the revolution were Scots and they hated the English. And guess who fought the English? About 80% of George Washington's army were made up of Scots huh. who were fighting. Like you. And you got it, right. And you. <laughs> right. You know, and so we've got this in our background. Obviously, we're wearing the hat. I right? feel smarter in this hat. There's something about that, I do. isn't In talking to you, I feel this is probably the smartest I've ever felt. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Oh, by the way. Continue. It's, it's the covenant. They had a national covenant, 1638, and of course, 
who was a part of that was was Samuel Rutherford. I want to say one more thing about yeah. Samuel. Samuel was a part of writing that and putting it together. 1638, uh, the people of Scotland, all the adults would stand up and they even used their own blood out of it and they signed the National Covenant to raise their children according to the Bible, not allow the king to dictate. That's a big thing. we got to watch that today. Right. If somebody says to me how I'm supposed to educate my kids, right. no, that's right. between me and God. It's not up to you, Mr. King, right. to tell me what to do. So they were willing to die for that and they did. They went out, the king came after everybody that signed that covenant over the next 30 years in what was called the killing times. But they came after Samuel. The interesting thing, Samuel was the most hated when the when the king came back into power after he'd been kicked out. Another, his son comes to power and, and he comes in to kill him in 1660. To kill Samuel. to kill Samuel. And he goes out trying to get him and he's laying in bed. And he's, he's already dying. He's dying and, he, and the, 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 the troops come to get him, he says, I'm sorry, I have an appointment with a, with a much b b higher king than with yours you. <laughs> this very day. One in which, one whom your king will never see. Wow. And a boom. And that's he how he died. died. I mean, he, he was dying. They didn't he, kill he him, he died. died. No, he just died, yeah. And the fruit of his life, little church, 100 people, loving the people for a long period of time. And look at the fruit. The fruit has been a changed world and a free America. What can we learn from the fall of Rome? We're just touching on little things today. I love it. Uh, the, you talk about the five sins. Yeah. What can we learn from the fall of Rome? And highlight, touch on those five areas of what can happen in a society that, that are, are interesting and important. Well, yeah. Uh, Rome was a pagan society. And, of course, when Christianity began to grow, it was persecuted. And for 250 years... The most the hated enemy of Rome, as far as the Roman emperors were concerned, were the Christians. Even though Christians didn't do anything against them, didn't raise an army against them, what the Christians did do is they had an army of compassion, I call it. They basically went into the catacombs of Rome, for example, and when the Romans would throw their babies out to die, instead of allowing the wolves to take them, the Christians would come out of the catacombs, pick the babies up that were going to be eaten that night, and take them back and raise them. And when they, someone was sick or there was disabled or got the plague, the Christians would come up and take the mother that was then thrown away by the family. Because under Roman law, there was no word in the Latin uh, vernacular for, for mercy. No word for mercy. Because mercy was an evil thing. You did not, if you showed mercy, you showed weakness. So the idea was you throw your mother out in the street to show how strong you are. Really, because you, you're afraid of dying because she's sick. That's what it was all about. What they would do, they have these carts would come by and just throw Mama on the cart. You never see her again. Well, the Christians would come and take Mama and take care of her. So Saint Lawrence is a good example. Here's Lawrence, who's a, who's one of the pastors who's down in the catacombs. The 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 governor of Rome hears about him. Hears that they have these silver chalices, and rumors are that the church has all this money and they're living in the catacombs. So he comes down to get him. He says, "Oh, I'm gonna, I want your, I want the silver chalices, and I want all this stuff." And he says, you come back in three days, and I'm going to accumulate all the wealth of the church, and I'm going to bring it in. And so the governor comes with his troops, and they come downstairs, and he says, I want you to go into this room. And he goes into the first room, and he says, the first room were all the disabled and the widows and the orphans that they were caring for down there. He says, this is our treasure. Hmm. This is our treasure. And he says, he says, if you will bless them, the God of heaven will bless Rome. Wow. If you don't, you're in trouble, right? Well, you know, the governor didn't like that. Right. So the governor took him out and put him on a barbecue and barbecued him. And as he was barbecuing him on one side and turning him over, the guy that was, was barbecuing him was converted on the spot. And, and then they barbecued him at the same time. 
It just shows you how wicked they were. But the idea being that they couldn't stop it. So what happened is, starting with 12 disciples, they end up converting about, of a population of maybe 30 million, you had about 20 to 30 percent who become Christians in 200, or less than 200 years. How did all that happen? Whole cities like Antioch were converted. Well, it happened because of their love, because of preaching the gospel, because of the power of God. And they saw the difference. Do I want to be a Roman emperor? All of them ended up either committing suicide or yeah, being killed by the, their own people. There were 53 Roman emperors, yes. and only three of them died of natural causes. Natural causes, yeah. They were killed or killed Wonderful. themselves? Yes, they killed themselves because suicide was the way to go, right? So, yeah, these were murderous, terrible people. And so, you see, the people begin to see, wow, that's why we have to live the life. That's why we have to, we have to love people truly with the love of Christ. As we do that, it transforms society and culture. And it only starts with a few, and it ends up transforming the many. That's what's going to happen again. It's going to happen in China. It is happening in many places all over the world, more so even than here now, because we've been the foremost blessed people who have kind of forgotten. It's time to remember. You know, the Bible says, Jesus says, Remember from whence thou hast fallen. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. You know what the American Christian needs? You know what we need, what I need? And I need a big dose of it this year. I need to remember how far I've fallen. I need to remember what I've been given. Yeah. You're living in the most, that's the most blessed community perhaps in all of America. And it was certainly the most blessed weather, you know. But in the blessings that we've been given, have what have we done with them? And what, right. what does God demand of us to whom much is given, much is that's required? Right. And I, so, so as I remember what God has given me, I can't give up. I can't retire. I can't stop. I, right, I've right. got to get out there and share the love of God and also the great principles that will help people be free. It's not a matter of left or right. Ronald Reagan had it right. He says it's not left or right. It's up or down. He says the issue is whether we'll go down to the ant heap of totalitarianism right. or up to the maximum amount of liberty under law. City That's on the, the hill. Truth. The city that's on a, a hill, yeah, that's what right, he said. Right, yeah. that's powerful. Uh, tell me about Eric Liddell. Well, that's an amazing story, isn't it? Uh, Eric was, uh, he's by the way, one of the chief, along with William Wallace, who's another story from a thousand years before. This, this uh, Eric is one of the great national heroes to this day. I give tour, I've given seven, eight tours of Scotland. And wherever I go, there's statues of him, there's a, a, you know, a monuments, and they still remember him. Why is he such a hero even to this day? Well, because, and of course people know that he, if, they, if they saw the movie Chariots of Fire, Chariots of Fire yeah. 1980 won the Academy Award, but, but, uh, but yes, he did not run because it was the Sabbath and he ended up running in an event that he never run before and he ended right. up winning the gold medal in the 200 instead of the 100, whatever it was. Um, and sure enough, everybody thought, well, this is great. Now you can go back and become rich and famous. Right. They offered him all these things. He kept his seminary training going. One year later, he got on the train in Edinburgh, and the people of Edinburgh gathered by the thousands. To I've been at that train, I've, I've seen it, and that's where he got on the train, never to come back to Scotland again, and took off to become missionaries with his mom and dad, who were missionaries in China, and he went over and spent the rest of his life from the time from in China, 1925 until 1945. In 1945, now, the the Japanese have taken China. It's in World War II. He's been there ministering in a prison camp. He's been in a prison camp now for several years. He's dying. He's sick, uh, and they could get they could they could do cancer treatment, whatever. But they can't. He's not. He's not. Come, he's not out. So it's the spring of the year. Winston Churchill spends five million dollars, gets a train, because the war is going to be over soon. Bribes the Chinese guards. They come in with a train to pick him up. 
and he fills the train up with refugees and the last spot is given to this pregnant woman. He stays behind and several months later he dies. But Eric is not just a hero in Scotland. Eric is a hero in China. Because he gave his life. In 1945, there were only 5 million Christians in China. Now there's well over 150 million, maybe as high as 200 million. And it's growing to such an extent they can't even they can't they can't control it. And they become leaders of provinces over there. I wouldn't doubt that after this regime falls, and it may fall sooner than we think, regime falls, that there's going to be a tremendous awakening. The, the, the head of the Times, the Times Bureau chief, wrote a great book on this, Jesus in Beijing. He said that the next great Christian nation in the world will be China, and it'll be sometime in the next 25 years. Isn't it's, that the, amazing? The gospel, it's moving west, and they'll be free. Can you imagine the Chinese people, after thousands of years, being free? Right. Physically and spiritually free. So, so there's one man, Eric one Liddell, man. who does who wins an Olympic gold medal in the 200 meters. Instead of staying and being rich and comfortable, famous, rich oh, and yeah. famous, he gets on a train, goes to China to give the rest of his life to be a missionary, right. and the country goes from five million Christians to 150 million. And I'm not saying that's all because of him, but that's an unbelievable story. Of, the Chinese give him credit. It, and, it did, and it's just like the power of one. You know, it, again, our one theme of this is it doesn't take a big numbers. It doesn't take a lot of money. It's one person deciding wherever I'm at, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make an impact, whether it's my family, my friends, whoever, or, or Samuel, you know, Samuel Rutherford. I mean, these are the people God's given me to care for. Right. Isn't that a good question for us to ask about wherever I am? I, your wife has had some health issues, I think, if I remember. Oh, 20 years on her back. Yeah, we've had 20 years suffering near death. Yeah. And that's part of your that's she's that's God's given with her to day. you yeah. and that's how you spend your days right. and then you know and I have my world and my family and my kids and but it, it's it, it just that way of thinking if, if we could you know think well what's what's my part I don't need to if God's calling me to China I'll go to China but in the meantime what can I do with the people God's given me whether it's my family my neighbors that's a powerful way of thinking it's a family dynasty I have given seminars many years on the family dynasty and how we change the world one one individual time, one family at a time, and we just you never know the impact you're gonna have. Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist and preacher in early America, had twelve children. And you may know this story, but I'll tell you one No, minute. I don't. So what happens is uh, he brings a great awakening to America in the seventeen forties. Famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry right. God. Right. Everybody knows about the sermon, right? But they don't know so much about his wife, his wonderful wife and his and his twelve children. He disciples these kids, even though it's hard. They make him a missionary of the Indians. He's kicked out of his church. He, you know, he's yet he's so famous. They want to make him the head of the of the Prince now Princeton University, uh, College of New Jersey, and that it was going to be founded under him. And he was going to be the head guy. He comes in and gives himself smallpox so that, to test it to see if the vaccine to see whether it'll be good for the kids, and it kills him. He dies of the vaccine that he wanted to take for the kids. So here he is, dead at 54. And when he died, his wife died a broken heart a year, year later. But they raised these 12 kids, right? Those 12 kids, they, they did a big study. And of those 1,200 descendants, 150 years later, 
80 of them have become missionaries. Uh, 25 have been in the Congress. Uh, 15 were senators. Uh, 48 became judges. They, I mean, they, they became, every one of them became productive. No one of them had ever been arrested. There was a guy named Mr. Pike who was in the same area, had 12 kids, and they did a study of him at the same time. And he said everybody that was his, in his dynasty, practically every one of them was arrested. And they never, never became a, a elected office of anything and didn't make anything in their lives. And the point is that you, you pay the price where you are and then there's eternal benefit. We get to, you know, isn't it really true that, that Adam and Eve are, are, are still enjoying the blessings of the repentant state? When it says in, in Deuteronomy chapter six, for those who love me, there's a blessing to a thousand generations. So in reality, it hasn't even been a thousand generations if you right. put it together since Adam and Eve. And that blessing has gone on and on and on. So even the Ten Commandments say there's a thousand years of blessing for those who love me and a curse of iniquity for those who follow the wrong principles. So we just need to go back to God yeah, and go back to him and trust him. It's not a big churchy thing. It's just come back and trust him. And he's, he's going to change our world. It's his world. Yeah. You said here, God is reconciling the world to himself and we get to be a part of it. How exciting. That is exciting. Well, and it wouldn't hurt for us to think generationally. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's not about us. It's not. It's not going to show up on your iPhone calendar, but you yeah. know, to think. Oh, like, we about, just discipled the nation. <laughs> right, right, by oh, doing. Right, but thinking generationally is a good idea. I mean, in terms of our families and our kids and their kids and their kids, I mean, that's a that, that, talk about investing in something greater than yourself. That's why education. That's a powerful that's thing. That's why it's so powerful. Right. Talk about this real quick, and I, I've got too much, but I'm going to work to go as much as we can. You talk about terror and triumph. You talk about covenant keepers win and covenant breakers lose. Talk about that and how that plays out in history. Well, that, it is an exciting concept, you know, terror to triumph. We live in a world where the emphasis is on terror, social media. Right. Every second we are bombarded with who died in some little province of some little country we've never heard of, and that's thrown in front of our face. And so all the wicked is thrown in front of our face, but the good things that are going on, right. all the people that are caring for the needy and, right. and, and helping this person, doing this, you're not hearing about that. Right. You don't know the good things, you see just all the bad stuff. That's why we started this program, by the way. They, well, there we go, <laughs> see? We're gonna so, do our little part. Terror to triumph, you got it. So the reality is that we're not moving from bad to worse, we're moving from bad to good. And that if we will trust him, and, and he is working it out, whether we know it or not, where the world is being reconciled. And so we go about it with love, but we march through history that way. So I did a series called Terror to Triumph, which is a 12-part video series that goes back and starts with Rome, and then tracks it right on through to America. And what I found in my study is that no matter what century you go to, whether you call it the Dark Ages, which wasn't really dark, uh, because there was a tremendous great good things going on during that time, or whether you call it the, the Reformation versus the Renaissance, or whether you get into the, the more modern era of America and the early America, and then, of course, what's happened today. Wherever you look, wherever there are covenant keepers, those covenant keepers in the long run bring blessing. And where there are covenant breakers, it's a short-term victory. They might, you know, Adolf Hitler did well for 13 years. After that, not so good. His little burning flesh was just laying around in the gutter outside of his, right. his little bunker. The same is true of all those who follow the wrong path. They end up in the long run and their children's children grow up to hate them. Whereas in reality, and I've seen it historically work out again and again, 
like Alfred the Great had five children who ruled England for 150 years. He trained them. He and his wife Ellsworth trained them so well, they got the principles. They lived it. They created what's called English common law, and they built it on the Ten Commandments, which Alfred himself wrote in his own hand in the English language, which nobody had at that time. And he put the common law with it, and he began that, those principles of common law that ended up in our Constitution. But he taught his kids those things, and they defeated the rest of the Vikings. And then they, wow. they brought all the, all the kingdoms of England together. So no matter which individual, you could just pick one individual that made a big difference in the world, I'll guarantee you, he followed the matrix of liberty from the scripture, which is, by the way, Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you want a Bible verse for it, yes. it's called the Shema. And the Shema was given to the Jews when, when Moses was going across, and he wasn't going to go because God was going to take him that day on the mountain. He was sending Joshua into the land. The last thing he says in Deuteronomy, he says that you are to know God, you are to love God, you are to train your children when you rise up and when you lie down. You're to live out those principles from your porch to the gates. Well, that not that the same principle? How you start out first is here internally right. and then train your own kids. And then from training your own kids, then you love people from your porch out to the city gates. Whenever you had a gate in the Old Testament, the gate was the seat of power where they would always have the governor, whoever was at the gate, right? So that, if we want to influence civil government in America, the best way to do it, read the Bible tonight to your kids. Pray over them when they go to bed. Yeah. Pray a covenant blessing on every, every night, every time. Don't let them go to sleep without it. And then start there. And then love your neighbors. Bring them in for dinner. They're all hurting. All these neighbors around here are hurting. Right. Just figure out a way to have dinner. And then from dinner, we go out and start going to city councils. And eventually, we'll elect the president of the United States. You're firing me up. We're going to win. I'm really By excited. God's I'm bursting. By the way, I, you know, so I've got some Irish blood from my grandfather. You've got it. Do you know why God invented vodka? To prevent the Irish from taking over the world. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought I'd mix that in. Well, that's true. Although, yeah. <laughs> there's, don't you think there's some truth to that? Oz Guinness, you know, is one of my great Christian... Uh, uh, theologians and philosophers. Oz is a, uh, the owner of uh, of Guinness beer. Oh, really? You know, so we don't leave. We don't want to leave Guinness out because when the <laughs> the truth is that when when Patrick came, he brought one of the best brewers in all of northern northern England, southern Scotland, with him. Really? And they say that the legend has it that the reason the Irish didn't kill him when he came is that his his beer was the was smoothest. Good. Guinness looks a little like motor oil. It does. I don't it's, like the taste of Guinness myself. I don't yeah. like the taste of the of the English. Yeah, I've had enough alcohol for yeah. one lifetime. But yeah, yeah. let's talk about Telemachus. Okay, so this might be our last story that we have time to get to. Okay, but but I think we need to start something, Marshall. Hashtag Telemachus. I don't know how to spell it, but when people hear this story, I think sometimes we need to think about what is my Telemachus moment. I thought of that. Hashtag Telemachus. Tell us the story of Telemachus. Well, it's very simple. He, uh, Christianity was growing, uh, but it, in fact, it grew to the place where Con Constantine was converted uh, 312 AD, and you see the conversion taking place that year. He then actually uh, makes Christianity the favored religion. And so Rome, over the next hundred years, to an extent, begins to show forth some of the old pagan temples are turned into churches and, and there's some Christianity going on. 
But the problem is it kind of became weaker when it got to be established, right? So there was some weakness at the same time. Well, the people of North Africa were still very strong in the faith, and they were down there in, in Athens, you know, in uh, various places in Egypt. That whole culture was Christian. Uh, one of the priests, or the, or the, uh, the great leaders down there, was Telemachus. And from South Africa. From South Africa. Okay, so a South African South, priest. A priest comes up, and he's never been to Rome. So he comes into Rome, and he didn't, he, you know, there was a big celebration. He thought, well, it was a big church service. That's a big church service is going on in the Colosseum. I mean, this is 100 years after Christianity began to influence. You would think that they, would, they wouldn't be doing what they used to do there. Right. So I'm sure it's a church service. So he goes up there, and sure enough, they're still having gladiatorial contests. So there, it's the Colosseum, and they're having gladiators kill After each other. After church, the people After go church. out to watch people kill each other in the, in the arena. So Telemachus sees this. He runs down to the front. He jumps off into the stadium and throws himself between the two gladiators and says, Stop, in the name of Christ. We're better than this. This is not what we do. We're not to kill people. And, uh, and so they, you know, yes, no, yes, no. And they killed him. They... The, the crowds had him killed. The problem is that then the guilt was so great that they say that was the last day that there was ever a gladiatorial contest in the Colosseum because the people just got up silently after his murder. And left. And they left, never came back. And they never did it again. They never did it again. That because a South African priest who'd never been in Rome before sees this going on, stands up and says, stop in the name of Jesus Christ. And they go away quietly and they never do it again. That's it. And that's true. So many people know that it's wrong. Things are wrong, but we need people to pay the price. And, and um, sadly, many times it's unto death. Yeah. I've been through the ages. I need to figure out how to spell Telemachus so I can do hashtag Telemachus. <laughs> I, I think like that it. could go viral. It could. Because we need our Telemachus moment. Where, where does God want me to stand up? Yeah. I mean, because there are times we need to stand up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, this is wonderful. I was going to ask you, your favorite passage is Hebrews 12, you said in one interview. Can you recite that? Do you know any of it? Hebrews well, 12? Uh, cloud of witnesses yes yeah well Hebrews 11 of course is the is the great chapter of faith all these great heroes that we've been talking about are 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 living the faith and it says they actually conquered kingdoms and they did all these great things and then it says they also you know they lost their heads and they were burned at the stake and they they paid the price but then you get into into Hebrews 12 and now we have the statement of of what we are to do if we want to be like those great heroes, then it tells us that we must stand. And give, give me the. Well, I don't have it in front of me. I don't me. have it in front of me either. Uh, but, but we have so great a cloud of witness. Yeah. Since we have so great a cloud of witness, let us lay down the. What hinders us? What hinders us? And, and I just blanked. Yeah. Yeah. But. Yes. So it's coming out of the faith chapter. Here's what they did, which, by the way, many of them didn't see the fruit. Right. But then it's then it's on to what we can do. What we can do, and if we do this, then we can be a part of their of their struggle. I'm sorry, I just blanked on the passage. Yeah, that's all right. People can look it up. It's in there. Hebrews I know, 12. The passage right there. <laughs> passage over there, just keeping silent. He's already going. Foster, how could you forget Hebrews 12:1? <laughs> so can you tell me? It's not like one of those blanks when 
when one of the candidates is, was asked, you know, right, you know, what, sta Perry. what state is he in? <laughs> right, oh, right. Wherever. Uh, uh, what was my dad like in high school? Was your dad like in high school? Can you tell any of that, or is well, it? Yeah, they, yeah. He well, yeah, he was. They, they called him Johnny Angel. Johnny but I don't Angel, know if I buy he was. It. He wasn't an angel, but he faked it. But no, he was. He was a very nice guy. In fact. You know, he was he was the leader of the pack in the sense that he was he was probably a half a year half a year more mature than the rest of us. You really? know, we had guys, Bill Clay, we had a bunch of our friends, you know, we would just hang out, a bunch of buddies, and we were in the football team and a lot of us had just become Christians recently or were on the way. Yeah. But but John would be the one one of the guys and probably the chief guy that would pull us together at, you know, four in the morning and sit in the car and pray. I mean, who does that, right? Really? Uh, but but John John wanted us to pray. John wanted us to get serious about our Bible and study and and uh, of course who was the one guy that went off to seminary spent his life serving the Lord and becoming right. one of the great pastors of our day it was John and we always looked to John that he would do that some of the rest of us went off and we there was different paths that were taken but but uh, John and I have always had that special bond and That's it's kind great. of fun in our older years to be able to you go back six, get what, yeah. 60 years now almost well, we're looking was it gonna be on our 60th uh, Reunion is going to be coming up soon, John. Wow. 1963. It was 62 that we actually went to a Young Life conference in Canada on a bus right. for like two days to get there and two days to get back. And it was that time that we both committed our life to service for God. And we've both been in full-time ministry ever since. Right. So it's That's of, fantastic. Right. It's This hour has flown by. Um, we'll have a toast. How about that? I've never yeah, done a true. toast on the program. To change in the world, loving people. God bless you. It's great you. to have you. Thank on. you, brother. Thank you for what you do. It's a good life. We'll see you next time.